Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing. On today's show, we're going to look at the Moto2 and Moto3 classes at the Portuguese Grand Prix. Steve English, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler bringing you through the action this week. And Neil, it was another real action-packed weekend, the Moto2 and Moto3 action, but it's been a, a really interesting start to the season. We'll start off by the, the intermediate class and uh, for... This championship, we're through three races now. We've had two in Qatar. We've had the Portuguese race as well. And there is a bit of a form guide developing. There is, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, what we have is uh, three guys that we all expected to be up there fighting for the championship. Um, And also one ridiculously fast rookie that's caught everyone a little bit off guard. Um, Of course, I'm talking about um, Remy Gardner, Sam Lowe's and Marco Pizzecchi and uh, Raul Fernandez, who... Um, majestically uh, fired to his first Moto2 race win in just his third appearance um, and he's really given the uh, the top guys in this class something to think about maybe even as a name for the championship so uh, yeah it's been um, I think we've had three very interesting races so far Sam Lowe's managed to stamp his authority on the first one but the, the other two have been really quite close uh, right until the, the checkered flag um, so it bodes well for the season ahead Yeah it's been a, a really interesting start to the season obviously we saw Lowe's win both races in Qatar you mentioned it there Neil that second race a real dogfight between himself and Remy Gardner and then we went to Portugal as well and uh, Raul Fernandez able to get his first win in the in the intermediate class and Adam it's been really interesting to see how all these riders have had you know a little bit of a little bit of struggles along the way like you look at Bezeki as well Neil mentioned him he's fourth in the championship he's down by 20 points and we haven't really seen the flashes that we would have expected from Bezeki on the basis of last year we saw Gardner struggled a little bit on Sunday here in Portimao the track temperatures went up he seemed to struggle a little bit more we obviously saw Sam Lowe's win the first two races of the season in Qatar he's at three poles but unfortunate to crash out at uh, turn one in Portimao and then Fernandez has just been on an upward trajectory all the way through these three races well to be honest Steve I think Sam Lowe's first corner crash is probably the most uh pivotal or like shocking event we've seen so far from the first three rounds i mean if you consider the fact that he had taken eight podiums from the last 10 grand prix uh to then suddenly eject out of the running after having like you said three pole positions and two victories that was uh i mean that was a real extreme of results wasn't it i mean we haven't seen anybody else uh kind of in title contention having that kind of fortune or fluctuation in fortune so um you know the one big question mark for sam lowe's i think will be going to hereth you know a track where he went superbly in the past is can he get back on the horse and get that kind of train of form going again i think that would be you know particularly vital for him yeah and i think it's going to be interesting to see what happens as well because mistakes are going to happen through the course of a season we're going to see it for all title contenders it's what always happens and you know Lowe's has still had two wins. He still had more wins than anyone else. He's had two podiums. So he's had you know the same amount of podiums as the likes of Fernandez or Gardner. So it's an instant that's happened, but at least it's happened early in the season for him. And he's done it on the back of being really strong in the opening races, Neil, because you know the form we've seen, he's been able to, to really give himself a lot of confidence that will go to Hareth, a track he goes well at. And you know he'll certainly feel he can bounce back. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, uh, it was a... It was a disappointment. Um, I think Sam believed that he could have been up there fighting um, in Portugal um, for the race win. Um, but when you look at the championship, you know, Remy Gardner only, in inverted commas, managed to finish third. Um, and with Raul Fernandez's victory, I mean, Lowe's is only six points off in the championship. So not uh, you wouldn't say it's the end of the world. Um, and, you know, he did go into that race 
you know, in really good form off pole position, as Adam said, uh, with really good pace. It was just one of those things where he had a bit of contact running down towards the first corner and, um, you know, um, things just didn't work out for him. But uh, yeah, Jerez was a good run for him last year, has historically been a good run for him as well. And yeah, perfect place for him to get his season uh, back on track. Um, I think Neil's going to smile at this one, considering my um, scepticism over Fabio Quartararo's emergence straight away in MotoGP two seasons ago. But Ralph Fernandez uh, undoubtedly has adapted to the class to the surprise of many. Uh, but let's not forget he took a victory at a track that he he said publicly that he loves uh, last time I put him out. And I really want to see how he copes when the season starts getting into a real regular grind. Uh, and as we get to a, a more of a diverse spread of racetracks um, so far, he's been the shining light, but I think, you know, there must be a part of Remy Gardner and also Sam Lowe's looking at this kid kind of in part firmer alongside thinking, listen, mate, by the time we get down to like Sepang and we're going to way to the triple header in Japan and Australia, I'd like to see if you're still with me. You know, as much as Fernandez has been surprising with his speed, I think Gardner's consistency has been something he's been building up to. Uh, I think, you know, some of his doubters will probably, probably be waiting for the first big crash. But, um, you know, he's he's got that championship form already kind of uh, marked out from, from early doors. Yeah, and I think it's definitely a case of coming into the season, you know, for our pre-season Moto2 season preview, we were talking about how you'd expect Gardner, Lowe's, Bezeki, we've already mentioned as well, to be those three riders at the front. There's always going to be guys that come in and have good results as well. Fernandez, you know, Qatar and Portugal, it shows that it's not a fluke. He's been at the front all the way through the season. Now we wait and see what happens. If he has a little bit of little bit of a dip, how does he react to that? That's the big challenge for any rookie whenever they're coming into the Moto2 class. But he's obviously got speed. It's going to be interesting to see how he kind of develops all the way through the season. But Neil, this weekend in Portugal, we saw that there was a big change in the conditions on Sunday, we went from, you know, a little bit colder on Saturday. Suddenly the track temperature went right up on Sunday and it did seem to affect quite a few riders. We saw Remy Gardner really affected by it. Yeah, I think um, once Sam crashed out at the first corner, we all thought that Remy was just going to clear off because his um, his speed on one moment was, was sensational. Obviously, he had a great win at, um, at Portimao the year before, um, last November. Um, but uh, yeah, as you said, Steve, um, the temperatures were, were much higher in the race um, than they had been in any other Moto2 session through the through the race weekend. I think also the same could be said of, of last year. Um, so the hottest track temperatures that they'd faced at this track, um, obviously Moto2 followed MotoGP race uh, for the first time this year. Um, and uh, yeah, it just seemed to kind of upset some people, they weren't expecting their, their bikes to be behaving in certain ways. And, and Remy Gardner was certainly one of them. I think Aaron Kinnett was saying the same thing. You know, just that the tire wear was uh, quite a good deal higher than uh, than they had anticipated. So, um, yeah, in that respect, you know, Remy admitted that he made a ton of mistakes in the race. Um, and he only got back into the battle with Kinnett and Joe Roberts for the podium, just um, because uh, those two guys were sort of messing each other up. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a sign of, of, you know, Remy developing into a, a sort of a championship beast that even on a bad day when he has made like a lot of mistakes in a race, he's still up there fighting for a podium and now crucially is leading the world championship for the first ever time. It's, um, I mean, Remy Gardner, I think he's got five seasons now in Moto2, uh, you know, uh, yeah, five or four, yeah, five seasons in Moto2, this is his fifth, um, I do kind of question, and we talked about it before, about how Moto2 can certainly chew up some riders and others can really adapt to it. I mean, that's another thing why we should sing the praises of Ralph Fernandez quite early on. 
you know, where are the likes of Tony Arbolino, uh, of course, the Moto3 world champion, Albert Arenas. Um, you know, we've not seen these kind of guys being able to make such an impression as, as the, the Spaniard has had. Uh, so it's this, it's a really tricky, complicated category, and I think people look at it. They they think it looks the same. It sounds the same. Uh, it's got the you know kind of limiting technical barriers, but uh, you know in some ways it's it's the, it's probably the hardest test, rightfully so, before you get to the MotoGP class. Yeah, and I think that you know you can look at how riders' form fluctuates when they change teams or when something changes within the teams as well. You see riders suddenly in, in a new season look reinvigorated and you know when you look at the likes of Joe Roberts he's obviously changed teams he's you know gone from the American racing team that was very much centered around him to Ital Trans team obviously you know a top team you look at Neil I thought Augusto Fernandez as well this weekend really does encapsulate that as well he came away with a top five finish which I think is probably equal to his best result that he's had in the last two years and you know he looks like he found a little bit of form yeah, I think he maybe had a fourth or one or two fourth positions last year, but I think it was probably Augusto's strongest ride, the closest he's been to the front um, since his last win, which was all the way back in Misano, 2019. Yeah, um, and yeah, you worried a little bit for Augusto in the first couple of races just because I think even during the race weekends, he was making pretty seismic changes to his bike setup. I think he was going back and forth between chassis in both the first and second races of the year in Qatar. Um, and that's usually a sign that you're kind of a bit lost, to be honest. But um, he did manage to get some decent points on the rub- on the board in the Doha GP. He scored a sixth place there. He was quite far off the winner, mind. However, um, he was up there in the leading fight um, in Portugal. Um, said, crucially, that he had rediscovered um, a bit of confidence with the front end um, of the bike in sort of long, fast corners. And that's something that's crucial because he's been missing that since Dunlop um, introduced a new front tyre into the Model 2 class at the start of last year. Um, so, yeah, there was definitely a lot of uh, positives to take on for Augusto um, in this weekend. And I thought it was interesting that Michael Laverty, who we're going to hear from later in the show, he centred a lot of his thoughts on Aaron Cannot as well, because Cannot was really impressive all the way through this weekend. He looked like he had that bit of confidence again. He looked like he had that feel again with the with, with the Aspar bike. And I thought that the way that he rode was really impressive. But I'll tell you what, I was surprised when Mlav actually compares him to Nari Haiga as well. And uh, let's be honest, if you're a guy that came up racing superbikes in uh, the last 20 years, if you're comparing anyone to Nari Haiga, it's always a pretty good sign. But I thought, you know, he comes away with 20 points for second spot. I thought the battle from Remy and Joe Roberts was really impressive. Remy Gardner able to come away with a podium and scrap for it. They're the kind of rides that you need to, you need to grind out whenever it's a tough day. And then Joe Roberts, of course, switching to the Ital Trans team this year you know looked like he found a bit of confidence as well Neil yeah absolutely um I think one of the things that you could take away from uh, the scenes after the race um before the season started we knew that Joe was going into the Italian trans team which is essentially an Italian team to replace an Italian rider um with um several members of the team that don't speak the best English by all accounts and a rider that doesn't speak Italian and you just wondered how is that going to fit exactly but um you know when Joe came back into into the, the pit lane you know the whole team were there to congratulate him and you could just see their enthusiasm for uh for the performance that he put in really strong uh Kinnett had been threatened to do this kind of thing through pre-season um, I think Qatar just wasn't uh, favourable for the Boscus Girl bike. He was actually pretty good whenever they had the daytime sessions in Qatar. Um, but once the uh, the sun went on, um, he just had no rear grip whatsoever um, and then basically started chasing his tail trying to find it. Um, so I think this is a, this should be uh, more likely 
as to where Kinnett will be this year, you know, fighting for podiums. I expect him to be there regularly. And Gardner, yeah, as we've mentioned before, you know, I think now in his last nine performances, he scored a second, fifth, fourth, third, seventh, first, second, second and third. So that is championship form. Are you sure you're right on those numbers, Neil? Yes. <laughs> I have his Wikipedia page open in front of me here. So, <laughs> Unfortunately for Sam Lowe's, but fortunately for the rest of us, you know, his kind of uh, removal from the from the race earlier on really opened the door to, like you say, a couple of other names coming through to the fore. And that's why I think, you know, the Moto2 race was probably the most uh, engaging one from, from Portugal last weekend. Well, as you mentioned, there are riders coming through to the fore. Let's talk about a country coming through to the fore as well, because Joe Roberts, you know, he's he's... Found something last weekend to get himself up there as well. He always goes well when the grip's a little bit low. So when the track temperature got up and it was a little bit more slick, you know, he was able to, to perform well in Portugal. But I thought Cameron Bobier as well, able to come away with a top 10 finish. We've seen step-by-step progress from Bobier all the way through this season. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, and you know, I know it's a passport issue and people have their opinions on, you know, what riders should be in the class and what shouldn't. Uh, but you know, I think Bobby's addition to the to the to the motor two field is something that can only be a benefit. In fact, I thought, you know, some of the signs of, of speed that he showed, again, you could classify it in the same kind of rate of adaptation as Raul Fernandez. Of course, you know, Cameron's not at the front of the field yet. But, um, you know, he, he has a slight precedent to follow with Joe Roberts carving his way through and showing the kind of potential that's needed. Uh, you know, Kanet, we spoke about a minute ago. You can see he's almost on that kind of path to MotoGP like Jorge Martin was on. Um, you know, slightly similar riders, very good one lap or short burst speed, uh, questionable racecraft, you could say. Um, but, you know, certainly uh, with, with the potential to, to go all the way through. I'd like to see much more from Bobier. Yeah, I'm quite interested to see how Bobier does develop all the way through. Obviously, coming from a superbike background, Neil, it's actually quite advantageous to jump on to the Triumph Triple. It seems an awful lot closer to the superbike style compared to what we had whenever it was the Honda 600 engine. It does, yeah. Um, and Cameron was just saying um, in Portugal that when you're a little bit off the pace, the temptation is always just to break that little bit later and try and make up your time there um, rather than focus on the exit. And he said he found that he was doing that just a little bit too much in Qatar when he was uh, with a, a leading pack of riders. Um, but I would say there's a whole bunch of positives to take from Bobier's first couple of races this year. Um, I mean, he set the fifth fastest lap time off the Doha GP in Model 2. I mean, fifth fastest in just a second race. That is impressive stuff. Um, inside the top 10 here, had he worked out the final sector, he probably would have even been higher because he was actually pretty fast, you know, among the maybe sixth, seventh fastest names through the first three sectors all weekend. Um, so I've been really impressed with Bobier. Um, I think he's come into the series with the right attitude. Um, he hasn't had this kind of superstar aura around him that you know i'm the man because i i you know did the business over in america he's come in humble right mindset willing to learn willing to listen to advice and criticism and um yeah i mean they, that team hoped he would be uh, finishing in the top 10 by the end of this season we're three races in and he's already doing that I mean, uh, thanks to Neil for reminding me uh, off the recording that Sam's not actually the second oldest rider, he's the third oldest behind Simone Corsi. But on, on the subjects of age, I mean, Cameron Bobby is 28. I mean, do you think he's got a limited time to get it right and get adjusted to Moto2? Well, I think it is changing now where riders can be older and get their chances in Grand Prix. And that's where you know the likes of you know, Johan Zarco, whenever he stepped up 
to the MotoGP class, he was a lot older than what we had typically seen riders come through. And we've talked about it quite a bit on the pod over the last couple of years about how the MotoGP class is evolving because there's so many competitive bikes. And that's where when you look at Moto2, obviously you're always going to have your Raul Fernandez's that come in, make a splash and suddenly you know, are being linked with all the MotoGP seats and different things. But it's also really important that you have your more established riders, your benchmark riders, you know, guys like, you know, this is, Gardner's got 80 starts under his belt in the Moto2 class. You know, Lowe's has been in the class since 2014. He's consistent race winner. He's generally been at the front all the way through his career in the Grand Prix paddock. So you've got these known markers. Bobier is a, what, a five-time Moto America champion. So you've got experience there now that if those guys are able to, if you're able to beat any of those guys, you deserve your chance in MotoGP. But equally, if you know the likes of Lowe's or Bobier, two of the older riders, are able to really establish themselves again this year, some and you know have consistent race wins, go out and, and challenge for a championship, they also could well get a chance to get back onto a MotoGP bike. And I think that's what's going to be quite interesting to see how it does evolve. I think a subject for a future podcast. Uh, I mean, certainly on our follow-up show would be you know does Sam Lowe's get a, another shot in MotoGP? Um, you know, like you say, I think it has to be on merit, uh, you know, not not through ageism or, you know, a reflection on his, his, his past entry with Aprilia. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where we've been able to see that over the course of the last year, if you think from Hareth last year onwards, the progress that you saw from Lowe's, a lot of that comes from just being in the right environment, building your confidence and being able to establish yourself and uh, show what you can do again. And that's what that's what we can see in the Moto2 class. Well, another thing to remember, I mean, I'd like to double check this, but I looked the other day is that I think all but two of the riders that have won Moto2 World Championships are currently racing in the MotoGP class. So if Lowe's does go on to win in 2021, then, you know, you'd like to think that an, an, an avenue or a saddle would open up for him to have another crack at it in 2022. We're going to take a break on the Panic Pass podcast follow up show, though, and uh, we're going to get the chance to hear Michael Laverty's thoughts on what we saw in Qatar. Moto 2 was interesting. I had it teed up as a bit of a fight between Sam and Remy. Obviously, Sam got it all wrong at turn one. And uh, once he was out, the face of the race changed pretty much straight away. I thought Remy, looking at the pace he had in practice and qualifying, would have been able to get to the front and clear off. But obviously, the temperatures going up just changed how the bike felt for him. He made quite a few mistakes, a lot of... um, I thought he was missing backshifts or not quite getting his backshift clean, but I think it was the overloading of the front tyre or perhaps that feeling where you just can't tip in with the front brake on. He had to pick it up and go wide, which is obviously the safe thing to do on a day like that, uh, to bring home 16 points in the end rather than he ended up on the deck. So clever in terms of championship on a day when he probably felt he should have been fighting for the race win and his uh, younger teammate took it. So... That shows the maturity in Remy this season. He did um, made the mistakes, but still fought back and uh, and got himself a podium finish. But the battle up at the front, actually, was, what a race. It was probably the best Moto2 race I've seen in quite a while. I thought Aaron Cannot was awesome. Loved his late break-in, riding so close to the back wheel of the other guys. Reminded me of Nori Haga in his prime. Just so close, so late on the entry, but pulling it down. Never made contact. And um, I guess that was a little bit the character of the Boscoscuro chassis and amongst those Calyxes, it was able to do something different. But I think Kanat's a great rider, great aggression, and um, he's really starting to find his feet in Moto2, so he can kind of uh, develop that speed we saw last season into race kind of winning and podium results. So 
good to see that turn around from Aaron Canet. But um, got to say, I was really impressed with Raul Fernandez, as I have been since he's jumped on that Moto Two Calyx. He just looks so good on it. His size definitely is better suited to the bigger machine. But to pass Joe Roberts and Canet and Remy, and then right away from them, he just dropped the hammer and put a comfortable gap in at the end. So yeah, really impressed with him when the tires were off controlling the slides and and just uh, looked at one with it so I think he's going to be a thorn in Sam's side for championship honours and Remy's side as the season progresses um, Joe Roberts nice to see him smiling after the getting defeated from that podium spot in the last lap he enjoyed the battles bit of rubbing bit of tarmac or bit of rubber should I say up the side of his uh, leathers on the last lap but um, yeah he was happy to be back in the mix and after what was a difficult two rounds of Qatar I think that was a good solid race for him um, once again, slightly disappointed by Marco Bezzecchi. Obviously, come into the season, I was tipping him as being a, a championship challenger. I felt uh, Marco, Sam and Remy were the three favourites, but so far he just hasn't been able to maintain that pace over race, race distance. Sounds like it's a grip issue, but yeah, strange that they still can't quite get to the bottom of it. So a bit of work to do for the, the Sky VR46 man. And a quick look at Moto3. It was actually a strange Moto3 race in terms of the the battle up front and the fact that Foggia's bike was so fast that he could, could lead on to the start straight and not be passed into turn one. That's just so unusual for a Moto3 race. But once again, Pedro Acosta proving his worth and just how skillful that, that young 16-year-old is rides way above his, his years and experience. And um, I think we're going to be talking about him for a long time into the future. He's got uh, the right team and the right structure already we know that with Aki and the KTM eyes on him they'll be already kind of planning his the next five years of his career and it looks like he's got the ingredients he's got the minerals and um, yeah he's doing everything right from his overtakes his race craft his bike positioning how how he makes those overtakes you know you've seen that turn three incident so many times in moto three where riders tried to make the overtake pulled out of it and then made contact with the other rider whereas you watch on the very last lap of the race acosta goes down the inside should have made contact with fagia if he was any other moto three rider but he just stood on the rear brake and drifted that little moto three bike into the apex which is incredibly hard to do they're not the easiest things to drift and be consistent and be accurate and still pull it down to the apex so it just shows how much control he's got over his, his machine under him so yeah very impressed with him once again and uh, yeah I think he's definitely going to be a, a championship challenger which is surprising as a rookie Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast follow up show fueled by the Elfmark VDS racing team we're now going to move gears and we're going to talk about Moto3 and guys we've seen it again this weekend Pedro Acosta the hottest name in the Grand Prix paddock right now. He's been able to pick up another race win. And this one was very different to what we saw in Qatar. In Qatar, you know, Neil, the pace was slow. It was a very different race. And the big headline was coming from pit lane. This was all about race craft from Pedro Acosta. Really impressive performance. Yeah, it was great, Steve. Really great. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to say it was more impressive than uh, Doha, but there were so many kind of doubts uh, that surrounded the Doha GP. I think it just... was more impressive. I think it was more impressive because there was a sense of expectation this weekend, a lot more pressure on his shoulders. Yeah, exactly. Not just that, but, you know, the guys racing at the front in, in the Doha GP were messing each other around. It was a slow race. I think it was 15 seconds slower than the previous year's Arden. Um, whereas this was actually a really fast race. Dennis Foggia has a good record at this track, is riding for a team that has great experience in the Moto3 Championship um, and uh, was setting a really fast pace at the front. I think he was leading for 16 laps and Acosta just shadowed him, basically. Um, watched him um, a little bit 
from afar. And um, it was interesting just that, you know, Foggia was able to make up a lot of ground on corner exit, it seemed, and through the kind of the, the fast corners that they have uh, in Portimao, the numerous sort of long, fast corners. But Acosta was just so late on the brakes. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he properly mugged them, I think, what, three, four corners from the, the, the checkered flag. Um, yeah, that wasn't a ride that you would associate with a 16-year-old rookie that is in only his third appearance in the World Championship. That was the kind of ride you expect from someone like Darren Binder, who's been in this championship for five or six years. It was, um, yeah, staggering. Another staggering performance. I can't believe, Neil, that you would immediately associate Darren Binder with a move on the last lap, shoving it down the inside, the bike sideways, somehow managing to collect it all. But Acosta was really impressive. Emlav talked about it there as well. Just the ability that he had just to ride that rear brake so much through the course of the weekend. We don't tend to see that an awful lot in Moto3. And he just looks really comfortable right from the outset, Adam. Yeah, and I think an important thing to, well, be amazed at is his racecraft. I mean, you're talking about a rider, I think, won like something like 85% of the Red Bull rookies races last year. I mean, this was a guy that learned, you know, arguably in the final step before coming into Grand Prix, you know, how to excel, how to control a very uh, Moto3, not only the machinery, but in terms of the group, that whole dynamic uh, pushing for race wins. Um, You know, in Portugal, Acosta's uh, shakiest moment was in FB1. Uh, He said as well afterwards that trying to get his head around those uh, damp, uh, slightly kind of mixed conditions were were particularly tricky. And I think he qualified outside the top 15. Uh, Sorry, he he ranked outside the top 15 in in FB1. Uh, Some more than two seconds adrift at the fastest time. So then you could think, well, there's there's the rookie status. There's a kid who doesn't really know, um, you know, how to handle that first session in those kind of, in that kind of climate. But then come the race, come decent conditions, and he was in familiar environment. And then that's uh, something I think for Akiyayo and his whole team to to really get enthused about for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think Acosta, you know, last year he was racing obviously in the CEV Moto3 Championship and the Red Bull Rookies. So I think he had 23 race weekends last year. He had 18 podiums. You know, he always found a way to get himself to the front. That was what was always impressive for me. And we actually talked about it on our pre-season shows. And it wasn't trying to denigrate Acosta or the Rookies Cup. But it's so rare, Neil, that a rider really comes through, shines in the Rookies' Cup and then really kicks on in the Grand Prix classes as well. We tend to see a lot of the guys in the Rookies' Cup that are you know, regular front runners able to adapt and do really well in, in the Moto3 World Championship. But we've seen an awful lot of champions in that cup that haven't quite made the transition. And that's why, for me, it was the form that we saw in the CEV Championship where he picked up three wins. He had eight or nine podiums through the year. He was always at the front. And I think the only times he wasn't on the podium, you know, he crashed out of races or got taken out of races. So, you know, he's always been fast. But what he's doing so far this year, it has to be a surprise to even like Acosta's biggest fans. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, Steve. I mean, for every Johan Zarco or Joan Mir or Jorge Martin that has come through the Red Bull Rookies and, you know, gone on to have a really successful career, there has been, you know, a Florian Alt or a um, uh, Carol Haneke, you know, someone that just didn't really basically build on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's impressive. And, and what is what's so impressive um, is that Acosta is now 31 points clear in the championship after three races. I mean, that is a sizable old lead. Um, Mark Marquez was asked about him after the race and Mark was saying that he thinks he can win the championship this year. I think that would be the first rookie to win the lightweight class since Caparossi in 1990. Um, so 
that doesn't happen very often. Um, obviously, big, big challenges to come um, when he goes to a track that, you know, he hasn't tested at like he had done in Qatar. He hasn't raced that before like he had done substantially in Portugal. Um, you know, maybe a bit further down the line when we get to um, like Aston or the Saxon Ring or places like that, it might be a little bit different. But, um, you know, so far, so very good. And it's also the fact that the regularity is impressive because if you look around him, riders like John McPhee, you know, Darren Binder, of course, in Portugal, uh, been so far adrift. And then, you know, Jalma Massia as well, crashing out on the last, what crashing out, but crashing down to ninth place on the last lap. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable that, you know, we're not seeing that kind of rookie make those kind of mistakes. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, if I was the likes of Jalma Massey who was sitting next to him in the pit box or Darren Binder, where you'd be thinking, listen, this is my last crack at Moto3 because I really need to be shifting up to Moto2, uh, you might be a little worried um, about this kind of fresh threat that you never anticipated. Well, I think what's going to be interesting about Acosta is, Neil, you mentioned there about going to new places. As far as I can tell, he's not going to have any new tracks until we go to Silverstone because the CEV Championship has raced in Le Mans. They've raced at Misano. He's raced in the Red Bull Rookies Cup. So he's raced at Mugello. He's raced at Assen. He's raced at, obviously, the Red Bull Ring last year. So there's actually not going to be too many places where he's going to turn up and have to really learn and adapt and, and understand something new. And I think that, for me, is one of the, the big things about young riders coming through now. And Adam, you're always a good man to talk about the business of MotoGP and the business of talent evaluation and talent finding you know all these cup competitions whether it's in asia in europe wherever you want to look the cev championship it all is geared towards finding more and more pedro acostas yeah that's right steve i mean i've said before i think that motor 3 might be devalued slightly because these competitions are coming closer and closer to the level you know of grand prix i mean of course i've never raced a motor 3 bike i could be talking out of my backside but it does seem that the, you know these you know from the from the cuna to campeones even in in valencia and in, in spain um and then moving up through the Northern Talent Cup, Asia Talent Cup, uh, Red Bull Rookies, the CV, like you say, I'm not even going to try to uh, say that full championship name. Uh, it, it's just for a long time, we've had a pretty teen cups, you know, in the early 90s, trying to get youngsters. And of course, the famous movie star, uh, you know, cup as well that saw the likes of Tony uh, Elias and Joanna Libe and Danny Pedrosa come through. You know, these schemes have existed, but now it seems there is a really, really set defined path for young teenagers uh, to make their way through to Grand Prix. That's a great thing uh, for weeding out the very best, the elite. Uh, but then also it, it kind of throws up question marks of what do you do if you can't make it through that system, uh, as we see in the case of a lot of British riders. Yeah, and I think what's interesting for me, Neil, you've obviously been you've been involved in the Moto3 and Moto2 classes for the last few years, working as a commentator for, for the World Feed. But when you look at some of the riders that we've seen come through, we saw Xavi Artigas come through, put it on the podium on his Grand Prix debut. Obviously, Acosta now as well. You know, we've talked already this year about the high hopes that everyone has for Guevara and a few other riders coming through. It does look a little bit like Moto3 is primed for riders now to really come in, find their footing and kick on and, and have success. What I find interesting though as well is Moto3 right now, last year it lost its top five riders. They all moved up to the Moto2 class. So there was probably a little bit of a vacuum as well where obviously you've still got a field full of talented riders but you've also got a field where there's the likes of Finati or Mino or John McPhee who are, are talented, fast riders but also clearly a little bit flawed 
They would have had their opportunities to move on to a higher level or stay at a higher level in the case of Fanati. And instead they haven't. So there is a little bit of an opportunity, if you're good enough, to be able to exploit that this year. And, and Acosta looks like he's he's good enough, obviously. And it looks like he's been able to really time it well. Yeah, no, I agree with that, Steve. Um, I did spend a little bit of time after the Doha GP wondering if the level of Model 3 had dropped substantially. And you just have to say, take the top five riders out of any class and um, maybe the quality will drop ever so slightly. Um, so, yeah, however, you know, I think um, his winning time from the Portuguese GP was close to five seconds faster than Raul Fernandez's time uh, the previous year. And while well, we spent the best part of five minutes bigging up um, Raul Fernandez as a rider and just how brilliant he's been in his Moto2 debut uh, campaign so far. So um, I think that, yes, it's fair to say that, um, that Moto3 this year maybe has, maybe doesn't quite have the level uh, of rider that it had last year um, but I still think what Acosta's doing is quite remarkable Steve I wouldn't you know I don't know what sort of prompts you to say that Romano Fanazzi has a you know a character flaw um, you know as a strange observation I think there's uh, there's probably more flags out there with a less checkered past than he has but uh no i mean it's, it's, it's a great point uh you know well made and backed up by neil as well uh moto 3 you could be very i don't use the word cynical that seems to be my favorite word anyway but it is you know it's a com it's a contest where you can watch the first two laps zone out and watch the last two laps but then it's also um a series that really highlights uh the trajectory of a rider and and his story and if you want to find an example of that then go and look at somebody like joan mir or mark marquez even you know when he was racing one two fives uh you really see the first kind of uh shoots of world-class motorcycle racing athletes in that category and it's it can be great fun to to, to watch as well regardless of the age or the experience um there's lots of different narratives going on and that's what makes it quite fascinating yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how it progresses all the way through the season. Obviously, on the Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to be covering the Moto2 and Moto3 classes throughout the rest of this season. So it's going to be interesting to see just how it all evolves really over the course of the rest of this year. It's going to be interesting as well to have David Emmett back on the podcast next week. He's obviously moved away from his world domination of football. He was involved in the uh, European Super League, but he'll be back on the podcast <laughs> next week. And, Disgraced. Uh, well, you know, loathed, despised. David's always <laughs> just, he, he just doesn't care about the legacy fans. That's the one thing that we've learned. But uh, on the Paddock Pass podcast, we're moving into some, some new fields this year. It's going to be exciting to see just what happens across the, the three classes this year, just to give everyone a little bit more depth on what's happening within the MotoGP paddock. So for myself, Steve English, from Neil Morrison, from Adam Wheeler, big thank you to everyone for listening to the Paddock Pass podcast follow up show fueled by the Elf Mark VDS racing team. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.